Conversation. Welcome back to Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron, episode 23, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, chapters 8 through 13. And back with me are Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Sheds, freshly out from their end-of-term exams. Welcome back, newly liberated teachers. Hey, how's it going? Hi, good to be back. It's great to have y'all back, and it's great to be talking about Harry Potter now. And um, in the wake of our almost one-year anniversary, I can't even remember the exact day that we first started this project, but we are coming up on a circle like a, a great Ouroboros or a circle eating it, or a snake in a circle eating its own tail. And uh, now we're moving on to more serious works, and, and it's interesting moving on towards your favorite author, uh, who will talk about one of his early plays this uh, upcoming Friday, uh, William Shakespeare. And so I'm excited to make that move with y'all into new magical realms. But you're here. Yeah, here, here. And so those realms will have to wait. So this time around, we had eight, the wedding, nine, a place to hide, 10, creatures tale, 11, the bribe, 12, magic is might, and 13, the muggle born registration commission. And so um, I don't really know where we want to start. I mean, the wedding seems like a pretty good uh, place to me and what happens to it and the aftermath of finding out that Scrimjaw is now gone, a, sec a second sort of major figure like that gone in, you know, two books. Uh, what, what popped out at y'all? What is it that you all would like to talk about this time around? Go ahead, Wes. Yeah, well, I, I mean, for me, this was a, a up and down kind of set of chapters um, because there's sections of it that are really action packed, you know, and a lot's happening. And then there's sections of it where you can start to see a, a certain amount of um, like laxness or looseness. I don't know quite put that, but but like time passes in a weird way in these chapters. And I think what I remember of this book, I remember that being kind of an issue as the book goes on, you um, you get into these kind of doldrums where it seems like not a whole lot is happening. Um, I take it that that is intentional and I think that she, Rowling must be doing that um, for some purpose, which I guess we could kind of speculate on to an extent. Um, maybe that'd be better done as we get further into this and see more of that. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting though, how um, the wedding itself sort of represents that same kind of thing. Like if you guys have been to weddings recently, there's a lot of like hurry up and wait, you know, once the big day finally arrives, it's like, it's so, um, so much is riding on it, right? You, you, you want it to go well. And yet um, so much of that day is spent just kind of waiting around, uh, <laughs> feeling increasingly like, uh, something had better happen soon or you're going to kind of go crazy, right? Um, that, that's how I feel about, about things like that. At least, um, you know, if you have to like give a speech at any point uh, or if you, you have to be up in front of people and you're all dressed up and all. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting, you know, transition point in the story uh, where we, we get out of sort of the early part of the book and into like the action. Um, but then we're sort of brought up short not not long beyond that again. So that, that was kind of my overall. Yeah, I I think I my sense of these chapters as a as a whole, um, 
and then I'd be curious what yours was, Alex, was that I actually had kind of a different vibe than you, Wes, but I got kind of a more cinematic uh, sense of things um, that like to begin with a wedding and to end, um, I don't know, their, their guests at a wedding that's extremely homey and welcoming and um, surprisingly decadent for the Weasleys. Um, and then, you know, by the end of chapter 13, they're homeless. They're, um, I, I felt like it was one big, long transition from comfort to discomfort, even though um, when they're at the wedding, there's clearly a backdrop of this is happening amidst enormous a period of enormous peril right um like the the wedding is only happening at the weasleys because it's the safest place for people to to you know to all gather um but for that chapter even even though there is kind of the the deviation into elpheus doge's story and um the uh tension between crumb and ron and crumb and Xenophilus, love good or whatever, but I, I don't know. It, it to me, it was like just a real, um, it's a, a peaceful uh, chapter that then sort of very quickly moves into, you know, conflict, and then there's peace, and then there's more conflict, and then there's a little bit more peace, and then there's. But by the, the end of that of our reading for today, it really felt like um, like every tie that had hitherto been, you know, fairly frayed, but every tie they had to the world they had known was largely gone. Um, uh, and they were on, like truly, truly on their own um, in a way that I thought was um, cinematic, I think, like deliberate. All of the apron strings had been cut. What do you think, Alex? I agree. I see it cinematically as well and would take it one step further and potentially see it allegorically. We've talked a lot about how with uh, Dumbledore dying as the figure of the old wise man, like the old, uh, the old blind king, that he is the last uh, vestige of the man behind the curtain who can protect you from the threat of death, which will get you no matter what. And that part of growing up is understanding that you certainly will die. We've made Christian connections, we've made Buddhist connections, we've made connections across literature with this. And I think that is a major function of good literature, to hip you to the idea that you will die. And that uh, how you conduct yourself while you live is therefore the most important thing, attaching out your character in the stars, as Dido would say that she lost. And so what I see here is a further um, sort of deep, a deepening of that perspective and that theme that um, where there's a wedding, like a graduation, a bringing together of people, a very safe sort of space, the safest possible space, or even into there, a snake comes, like the snake that tries to slither into purgatory every day in Dante's Purgatorio, that uh, the Patronus comes and says Shacklebolt, or it's Shacklebolt's Patronus, and it says that Scrimjaw is dead. Uh, yet another figure of power and safety, and a figure of the ministry as a figure of power and safety, another safety net like Dumbledore, like the, like the two parts of a balance they've been, and now both are gone, bang. And now the evil in uh, the political system is a direct manifestation of the choices of the people there. And who has to deal with this? Well, the new adults, the people who now have to make their own choices, the people who are now all of age, 
the three we know, uh, you know, just sort of like the three we know in the Lord of the Rings, except for one is arguably not like Gollum, though it would be Ron, um, <laughs> uh, Hermione, Ron, and Harry. And um, uh, immediately it's as if what this allegorically represent, represents is the tidal wave of responsibility that hits you when you go from being a child to an adult, and also that sort of desert that you find yourself in, deprived of that that tremendous meaning you've had your entire childhood, which is to, you know, become an adult, to be, to get your education, to, you know, develop your skill. And now, bang, they're out. They don't know what to do. There's no map that's uh, helping to guide them. This is actually something David Oldham brings up about becoming a lawyer. It's like the second you become a lawyer, you don't know what motions to file immediately. You, you don't know what to do. And I think it's much the same with us when we became teachers. It's like, did you know what to do? It's like, no, not really. But that's, uh, I think, modeled here with these, these uh, kids who are now adults, these beginning stages of now being out on their own and just how difficult, uh, strange, and terrifying it can be. One thing I thought was interesting about the wedding, and I think this is mentioned on like page 150, um, uh, that Harry remarks or the narrator remarks in the mind of Harry that, you know, he had, he couldn't imagine a muggle wedding being anything like, um, being anything like this magical wedding because they, they cut open the cake and, um, you know, phoenix, phoenix, two phoenix birds fly out. I don't know, is the plural of phoenix phoenixes? I don't know, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, that two of them fly out of the, fly out of the cake. Um, but, you know, I, I have to admit that, like, I mean, I've never myself been married, but there was, aside from the phoenix piece, um, uh, this wedding looked awfully similar to weddings like in the muggle world. And um, I, I thought like the vows were really similar. It was awfully like Judeo-Christian. Um, the way like all of the setup seemed really recognizable. Having been a bridesmaid before my brother got married this past, I guess like 10 days ago and um, being in that or seeing kind of, behind the curtain of all the preparations and all of like the work and anxiety that goes into that for the mother of the groom and the mother of the bride. And um, I don't know, the, the whole reception, the, the wine, the awkwardness, the, you know, groomsmen trying to flirt with bridesmaids, it just looks so regular. And I, I haven't, I have a thought about why, but I'm curious as to, why do you think that there wasn't much magic there? I mean, the only magic that I could really see was um, that like uh, um, Fleur's dress makes everybody look beautiful, which isn't that different from a bride. Um, and that uh, when the, the wizard like waves his wand, there's birds of paradise and bells and and silver stars right but that's the only magic i could i could really sense of things um what did you what do you guys think there's a, a reason why it's such a such a recognizable ritual well 
if I were to engage in some double Dorian speculation at this moment, I might suggest that this is a case in which the secondary world cannot improve upon the institution the primary world has. And that if Dumbledore had been present, he might say that there's a magic underlying marriage far deeper than any magic known. Though, of course, also mitigated by language, a point that Wes brought up very, very early on in our Harry Potter studies, the, uh, the way that this is, magic is embodied, but also articulated, and that there's something to people speaking and changing reality. Um, and that's very interesting and weird. But I, I'd say that that's part of why that um, the institution of marriage is itself so utterly magical and divine and interesting and uh, deep that it is very difficult to improve upon it except for you know adding some like additional uh, secondary world magical accoutrement. Like I can imagine like some magical birds and doves coming out of a, a cake or something cool like that and some cool party favors made by the Weasleys for some kids. But um, it, I don't know, I just also connect that to we now have religion being thrown in not only in this institution, which seems sort of oddly non-religious, though highly religious in some ways. I, I don't know when the level of magic goes from plain magic to deep magic, which I take to be sort of religious in nature, like the, you know, the magic about not killing people or raising them from the dead, that sort of dark religious sort of necromancy alchemy, alchemy magic. But uh, also we have, like you mentioned, Luna the or Theophilus Lovegood's religious imagery, which then connects to a fairy story book that Hermione has. And so I think we have uh, sort of a meta commentary on what this book is doing and what any fantasy book is doing. Sort of, I think you laid it out as a theory, which I agree with, which is that a fantasy story manifests real personalities, or the better it is, it manifests real personalities in situations that could not happen in this reality, just to test the principles of our reality and to understand them better. Like, would we be ethical in a magical world or something like that? And uh, you said that it's actually easier, Sarah, for you to, uh, to understand principles from our world when they're placed in sort of a remote world. And I, I think that's why, you know, Star Wars is set in a galaxy far, far away a long, long time ago. I think that helps having that. Um, uh, I don't know what the scholarly term is for it, but that sort of uh, distance from the medium. Um, but um, Sorry, I'm 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 losing my my complete thread going out on that uh, going out on that branch. But I oh yes, I think it's just interesting that religion is now being broached and broached in this particular way. That there's a connection even to the endeavor that Rowling is going on by writing a fantasy story that millions, tens of millions of people read themselves as well. Uh, yeah, I'm curious, Sarah. Is that kind of where you're going, like the Dumbledorean love kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I think that's sort of what I, that's what I was thinking. Um, I, I was I noticed a lot of the light, the colors of the wedding were silver and gold, and yes. I, I I remember thinking that um, the uh, the first time I read it, I remember thinking um, nothing of it, but a little bit older, um, I'm sort of struck by how much money the Weasleys seem to have spent on this. And like the, the De La Curse just like waltz in two days before the wedding and like survey everything. Oh, how charm, how, how charming. Um, but um, <laughs> like that seemed to me strange, but um, given all of the silver and gold and the birds of paradise 
I sort of, I, I, I sensed, I'm not, you're a typically a symbolic reader, but um, that there was something celestial about what, what they were doing, something that perfectly ordinary on the one hand, a lot of people get married, and on the other hand, perfectly extraordinary, which is, I think, um, something that, that we've been, we've been dancing around the whole time we've been doing this, that there are really ordinary things, and if they're done in a particular way, or with a particular intent, they become extraordinary. One of those is language. Um, one of those is friendship, right? Um, and uh, there was, yeah, I, I got the sense that there was something like semi-divine about um, what was happening, and that that uh, like a like in the uh, like in the Christian tradition, or at least in the Catholic tradition, you know, at a Catholic wedding, um, you know, marriage is a is a vocation for two people to get to heaven. Um, and it's it's a path that people bind themselves to to literally get to the celestial sphere. You know, there there really is a, it actually is a you know a domain. Uh, anyway, that's what I was I was thinking that very much the same. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I mean, I think with that element of Dumbledore's absence being brought home so much, you know, more deeply here. It's curious that he's also strangely present in these chapters in different ways. Um, he's talked about, of course, quite a bit. Um, we're, we're all very curious about why, if he lived uh, in the same place where Harry's parents lived, uh, why he never mentioned that fact, right? That which comes out here, and you know, there's a lot of sort of gossip going on about Dumbledore's own family and its kind of complex troubles. Um, we hear a little bit about that here uh, from that, you know, that one relative who's just uh, a little bit uh, out of control. Um, in this case, it's uh, Aunt Muriel. Uh, but there's also, uh, once we, you know, have, thanks to Hermione, a chance to get some uh, breathing room and make it to uh, Grimmauld Place, we, we see Dumbledore there too. And he he's in like a, a ghostly sort of curse form there um and we read like a letter about him and how he's got the invisibility cloak and start to wonder about what's going on with that so there's, there's all these kind of weird ways in which Dumbledore's um absence is, is simultaneously like a chance or an occasion for um like being more curious about what he really meant you know it's like you don't know what you got till it's gone kind of thing um and and I think that in this book, we are finally starting to kind of like inquire into what did Dumbledore like mean by saying that love is the deepest magic or, or music is the most wonderful magic or whatever, you know, he might have said, uh, things like that, you know, um, where might he have been getting that from? Uh, where does the invisibility cloak come from, <laughs> for example? Uh, stuff like that. We're sort of starting to to work backwards through some of that material um, in a, in a kind of interesting way. And, and that's, you know, weddings bring people together. We see, we see characters that we haven't seen before, like uh, Luna's dad, and we see characters we have seen before, like Crumb. And, um, and that's another way in which we're sort of like working through and working outwards um, from this kind of sort of circling around the same topic, but, but developing it in a, in a deeper way. 
Yeah, and also, uh, I don't, I don't know if you mentioned it, but it was definitely there in spirit. Uh, sort of like Dumbledore in these chapters. Uh, Rita Skeeter's book on Dumbledore too, right? Not only the account by the relative, but uh, uh, you know, yeah. Or did you say that in the Prophet? Um, oh no, I didn't mention that one. That's a good one. Yeah, we do finally start to. Uh, I think we see some of that book because it's on the shelf in the ministry or, or somewhere, right? We we finally um, actually see a copy of it eventually. Right, and it's very interesting just to what extent, even as a reader, it makes me sort of question Dumbledore just because of so many people saying so many different things about him. It's almost as if I, I don't understand what the difference, the different ontology is between each people's experience. Like, uh, how real is what Rita Skeeter's writing and this very scholarly seeming work, very different from her former polemical works. And, you know, is she, has she returned to her polemical ways as we would suspect, of course, or, or is she painting Dumbledore in the most interesting way possible, which is honestly, and what about this relative and how does that square with our experience of him? And I just also very much connect this to the idea that Dumbledore is the embodiment of sort of like the God, the father or old wise man archetype. Because, and I know this is sort of mixing the son and the father here, but he's also sort of conspicuous by his present absence in the same way that sort of Jesus is an ethereal figure after he dies, right? He seems to be there in appearing to these apostles, but he's not really there in the same way that he was before. There's something different, though there's something the same. There's like some, some essence or being there. It's sort of Sephirothian, you know. Uh, just use the Final Fantasy VII reference, but it's not exactly, uh, it's not normal or what it once was. And so that's kind of how Dumbledore is also present here, but like in a ghostly way. And I just connect that to the idea that he he took his last sips in that underworld-like place, that river of death full of dead bodies, like the river Styx or Ak uh, and I think it is actually Styx in Dante where he gets, uh, where he goes across with Phlegias. Yes, but um, but yeah, I, I totally agree that he's conspicuous by his absence, that he's still sort of present, but that um, if this is the narrative of how one becomes an adult or one walks the path of the hero, I also agree with you that now, since he is not there to explain things to us, it has opened up new realms of um, uh, curiosity to us, the new paths that we need to explore ourselves. Like, how do these horcruxes work? How do we destroy these horcruxes? What the heck do these gifts, like a de-illuminator, even mean that uh, Dumbledore gave us? And was he crazy or did he actually have a plan for all of this? Uh, and and why did he put this pat, you know, this job on us rather than, you know, like Shacklebold and the proven and incredible um, wizards? And so, yeah, I guess I find myself, yeah, go on, Sarah. I was going to say, I think that becomes all the more clear in the chapters that follow what we read for today. The, like the absence of a plan, like what we want in a plan is a detailed set of steps, like what Hermione has um, in chapter 12, like a, she has like a, a school list. She has a schedule. They have everything is plan how they're going to infiltrate the, the ministry. Everything is planned, um, you know, down to the minute when they're just trying to think about how to get in. But um, I think it hits Harry at some point in chapter 12 where he realizes um, that his, uh, that they had this, this great plan for um, getting in. It's like page two, maybe it's chapter 13, sorry, 247 and 248, where um, he realizes 
um, that uh, um, Hermione has now left his side, has gone with um, Umbridge down to the courtroom. Ron has been sent to deal with magic um, that he doesn't know what to do with about the reigning in, uh, in the office and that he is in an elevator headed directly away from the very thing and the person that he had gone to look for. Um, and that um, it hits him that like that thing that, that Lupin told them in like chapter 10 that you're about to encounter magic you're not prepared for is what we think constitutes preparation is not the same as what constitutes preparation. You know, like you may not be prepared. I, I've, I've listened to a lot of like commencement speeches in the last month as everybody does um, uh, this time of year, but you may not be fully, it, it, I, I heard it said a couple different ways. Like you may not be prepared, but you're ready. Um, like, like Hermione is prepared down to the letter of all of the supplies that they need to infiltrate the ministry, but they're not, they're also not prepared and yet they're ready, right? They're ready to face the things that they need to face. And, and when, you know, the shit hits the fan, Harry rises to the occasion and he, he helps all of these muggle-born people escape and he does it without thinking, without an, a set plan. Um, and so um, what we'll see in the, in the coming chapters is, you know, principally Ron, but also Hermione and Harry wondering like, why did Dumbledore not prepare me better for this? And I think the question of what constitutes preparation, just like what constitutes a good education, um, can you be educated for everything? No. Can you be made ready to like navigate things? Yeah. Um, uh, does traditional education do that in ways that are inferior to different and new maybe more innovative methods of pedagogy absolutely yeah um there's new ways to teach kids to be better, to be more ready for the world than simply forcing them to memorize shit but um you know and then take a test but um anyway i i think we'll see that we'll see that play out even more but it's definitely something the disciples struggled with like what is the plan here <laughs> um and I don't know. Are you, I don't know. I think that's an important question of growing up. Like, am I ready for this or am I prepared for this? Because um, you might be one and not the other. Yeah. I, oh, I thought that Hermione did a really great job, you know, getting them um, their stuff together. Oh, totally. Um, totally. The initial, like she, she's ready for the initial escape. Um, and so it's that much, you know, and she does seem to, uh, be instrumental in, in designing the infiltration plan there. And so it's, it's all the more surprising to me, I guess, that she hasn't uh, come up with a really firm idea of what they're going to do once they're inside. But, but then on the other hand, I think you're right to, to point out that they do, um, they do manage to, to make it a successful, you know, a job anyway, because of the kind of qualities they each possess. They, they sort of, are able to do it. They're ready, even if not prepared. In in that uh, in that case, and I mean, it's it's a pretty cool like heist sequence. Like I, I found that to be uh, one of the more successful portions of of the reading for today. Frankly, like um, that, and and of course Hermione's 
you know, great compassion coming through with Creature and kind of rehabilitating. And he seems like one of the most difficult, you know, of all the cases of of somebody who's, you know, deeply steeped in in a lot of evil um, situations and things to to kind of recover him uh, pretty pretty abruptly. Actually, it, it's mm. it's a quick turnaround there. Um, and and I think that's another example of where they're sort of seeing something Dumbledore had had talked about. You know, one of Voldemort's great weaknesses, one of Dumbledore's great strengths. Uh, seen it from sort of a different angle here about like taking care of the downtrodden, um, respecting the sentience and the feelings of other beings, you know, um, whereas Dumbledore uh, always sort of went out of his way to treat everybody with great dignity and respect. Uh, Voldemort can just uh, completely dismiss to the point that it's like a major liability for his whole scheme now that, that his secret is, is really out. You know, this, this creature uh, has, um, has <laughs> his, you know, and, and so there's something kind of cool going on there too with respect to like, you can never directly prepare for that, but because of the way that you always sort of inhabit the world, you're ready when, when something like that happens, um, the, the defection of creature to the, to the good side here. Um, I thought was a was a really interesting uh, component to this as well. And just how? I, oh yeah, go on, Sarah. I was gonna say I think the word that I was trying to articulate before, but it just kind of came to mind as you were describing that, Wes, is just the idea of formation, and that like you can be formed for things that you don't know about. Um, I and I think I'm I'm curious what you all felt when you were reading or or listening or reading slash listening to the to creature tell this story but I was moved to tears I was weeping in the like like reading that story I and I think it it reminds me I don't know why but it it just reminds me of like (laughs) something totally not worth crying over but, but equally important just like the value of or the, the potential power in community organizing. <laughs> so like, if you listen to someone's story, you will know exactly how to like collect their power or um, like identify and access their power. Um, and just, I think, I think in our previous conversation, we talked about at least something that struck me was like Dudley's, um, sort of reconciliation with Harry, but you know the way that Dudley has been sort of um, re- redeemed, I guess, in a way. Um, and I think we start to see some of that in in um, in Draco as well. Um, that like these characters that you think are past the point of no return. It's not a creature I would have definitely put in that category, but I was weeping at the story that he told, a story that nobody had ever bothered to ask. Um, and, you know, I think, I think, uh, like you said, that, that is um, the weak, like it's a, it's a, it's, it is the weakness in, uh, in, in Voldemort's plan that more than one person that he actually needed other beings to execute his plan, which he couldn't even admit to himself. But, I'm wondering what you guys thought or even emotionally experienced while you were reading that that story. The last 
10 pages of that chapter, just like, oh, tear central. Well, I definitely felt something and felt something strong and just part of the narrative weight of it was that it made me unpack just all the factors that would have added to the pain that creature would have been feeling. Not only the fact that he saw his master die, that he helped his master die, but that he has to lie to his mistress and lie to his mistress in a way that makes her hurt because she doesn't know how he died. And so he has to see her in pain every day and know that he's caused that. And, you know, that's just very powerful. And, uh, you know, it does make sense why he would have such a crotchety disposition. And Hermione, again, reads the situation accidentally, not only intellectually, but also emotionally, understanding that, you know, Sirius, again, her seeing him for his flaws help her to see Creature for his virtues, because she can put, connect the fact that Sirius treated Creature poorly. And of course, he nothing likes to help that which, um, which is cruel to it. Um, and so, and Creature included, he is a sentient being, reminding everybody, again, that uh, Creatures, especially sentient Creatures, and, you know, I think it is powerful that he is called creature because that's both dehumanizing and humanizing all at once, right? He is a created being in the same way that we are. Um, uh, but, uh, and within this context, he is also sentient. So I, I agree that that is foreshadowing the strength and also paralleling or, or showing the message that love and kindness and empathy and recognizing the facts of empathy that we share at even an animal level are very important um, as humans. I mean, that seems to be one of the reasons why we keep pets just as, you know, a creature, not, not, uh, you know, as, as high in dignity as creature, who is of course, obviously more than a pet though. Uh, does, I don't know that he has, he still doesn't have his autonomy nor want it, which is very interesting about him. But I also just, uh, I thought Wes, when you were talking, I saw a major contrast between Hermione's actions and her bringing her, you know, her heart, felt um, uh, emotions out in relation to Creature, but I saw opposite to that at the ministry, the Voldemortian Umbridge, who is now standing above everybody and is herself feeling pleasure while everybody around her, she's doing the opposite of empathizing, right? Is feeling the weight of the Dementors and their, their potential kiss. And that um, mm. sort of the dark side here that has become more and more like the dark side in Star Wars is becoming more absolutist and separated from what a real human actually is. They're subjecting humans to torture just being in their presence, um, which is exactly what I think is happening there. And then they're putting these kangaroo courts in session where now instead of treating people in a brotherly sort of friendly fashion, they're directly castigating a class of magical people. Um, and ostensibly with their new magic is might a slogan planning a full-scale invasion of the muggle world a total reevaluation of muggle uh, magical relations and even magical magical relations they, they seem to be moving farther away from an understanding of human nature that can allow for a successful and cohesive community uh, yeah she's pretty terrible as a character <laughs> I, I was really sad that she was back in the story to be honest uh but th that was kind of the weirdest thing about this section for me is like you go from the message that Shacklebolt's uh Lynx Patronus delivers and then like a few chapters later you're you're back in the ministry right it's still there it has fallen but only to those who are like aware of what's actually going on 
um, to the masses, it's still operating. And as you say, it's operating in a particularly uh, odious fashion, um, not at all uh, like a, an obvious um, uh, downfall, but, but like, a, like a continual uh, terrible like destructive vortex that sucks everything into it and makes it all worse. Uh, it's just, it's just really rough. Um, the, uh, the way that she has, um, sort of thrived under this, this turn of events, uh, yeah, is, is on the one hand, not surprising, but on the other hand, just, you know, really disappointing, I guess, as far as you know, characters who are beyond redemption go. She she's got to be the top of the list. On that. I thought, I think the way that she just retorts um, people's logical objections to their line of thinking, it just makes me wonder. Like, does she actually believe this shit? Um. And is like has 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 drank the coot, you know, like the way that she talked about where she got the locket, <laughs> that like so patent of a lie. Um, but um, does she have a lie for everything, or is she is she deluded into thinking all of this stuff? I think I'm 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 off often as I've been reading this particular book, I'm struck by the complete lack of logic in the powerful or in like the arguments of the societal powerful right that like somehow you could steal magic what like that it's nonsense like nuts um it it's just it's such obvious scapegoating and using i mean it this is the these these systematized um like judgments against people of non-pure blood these are this is the consequence of language that is used to hurt um right this is what ha- i mean this is what happened in um in, like the rise of nazi germany i mean i think the you know these these laws and these rules and these systems they don't come out of nowhere but um I, I guess I like, is she maniacal and just looking for power and whatever and doing whatever it takes, putting on whatever mask is required to stay, you know, with the minister's ear or is she crazy? Like, <laughs> I, I can't quite decide. I know that she always hated half breeds, but I don't know. <laughs> just the level of deceit and lying. I don't, at some point, you start to believe all of the lies that you're telling everybody else. That's insane to me. That's crazy. I, I, that's a very difficult question. I don't have a ready made answer for whether she believes what she's saying or not. But if I were to again speculate in a Dumbledorean fashion, I would think that she uses language instrumentally. And she, she strikes me as uh, one of Solhe Nitsin's, uh, one of the people he describes in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, uh, one of the company men or, or one of the Soviet men, one of the party men, there we go, uh, that she uses language in order to get what she wants and does not care what she says. It's, she doesn't even care about using logic. And I, I wonder if that is what J.K. Rowling is saying here about um, uh, sort of um, totalitarianism, that 
when you give up your mind to it, like giving up to it in a wrinkle in time, you have given up your, your claim or your safety net in rationality. You have given up your, your ability to say that doesn't make sense and therefore I'm not going to do it. That, um, because it, it is stark and in your face here. And I wonder whether that's because it's a young adult novel, a mistake, or, or whether there's something deeper underlying it that even the very claim that they stole their wands, which they bought, is absurd. And it is very clear and has been clear since the founding of uh, Hogwarts or even before that there were people that were born with magical abilities to muggle parents. The founders knew that. That is old news. And so I, I wonder if that's part of what um, J.K. Rowling is saying is that this person is so twisted and now this government is so twisted that they don't even care what the truth is. That it's not even so much an inability to recognize the truth as a, a pure desire to get what they want in their mean-spirited way and of just throwing it in our faces that they don't even have to be rational anymore and they're just gonna do what they want, like bullies. Yeah, yeah, she's, like I said, pretty vile. Um, I, I thought actually a little while ago, I thought we would maybe touch on Remus briefly because uh, Remus Lupin, yes. he, he, does some, he does some interesting stuff here where um, I think he is a much more complex sort of take on this same, maybe a similar problem, maybe not quite the same problem, but but he seems to want to uh, help, obviously he'll help Harry and, and the others with whatever it is that they're doing, um, but they cannot tell him what that is, and they can't allow him to help them. Thus, uh, you know, and and he's uh, also got this interesting news, right? That his wife is now pregnant, and instead of being simply overjoyed at that, as you might expect, he actually is very conflicted because of the nature of his curse, which is now being, you know, potentially passed on to the next generation. He's he's not really sure, but he's, he's you know, very afraid that his um, lycanthropy will be uh, inherited now. And so that's, that's like Harry's take on is that that's motivating him to, to want to escape from his responsibility as a father. Um, it's a really uh, impassioned little scene there. Um, and one that I, I think there's, you can start to see, again, some of those kinds of tensions and conflicts between the characters themselves, the, the heroes themselves, um, like with how to, how to deal with that. Um, it's, I think, another way in which um, love uh, can override logic or something, right? In, in the case of the ministry, it's love of power, and it's obviously a big problem in that case, but it's a little more hard to, to pin down in this case where it's, you know, love of... Um, family, you know, that kind of loyalty, which Harry, you know, greatly prizes versus love of uh, friends and, and wanting to kind of help and do the right thing as you see it. Um, I think it's a, it's a much trickier situation here. I was curious what you guys thought of, of how they handled that. I have a big problem with this scene um, and how you laid it out. Maybe that's the beginning of a solution, but it's a very troubling scene for me because I see absolutely no reason why they shouldn't accept Arena's fruit Lupin into their confidence. And I see absolutely no way how that would not help them except for the fact that again, there's that sort of deeper magic element where he is running away from his responsibilities and 
up, and perhaps this is what joined him to James and Sirius in the first place. You know, we know well the flaws of Sirius and James at this point. They're a bit cruel and arrogant. Remus has been sort of like a little angel. And in here, we see his, his desire to use his condition as an excuse not to engage in the responsibilities of love. And we saw that happen at Hogwarts with Harry, and we saw that happen here. He's much more like Sirius than I think we knew before this. And I think uh, Harry, I almost called him James, senses this and senses that his intention in coming to help them, even if he would be greatly helpful, are not right. So much so that, you know, he really, he really like, you know, yells him off like a dog. Um, you know, you better get a Remus. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's very painful for me to read it because I hate it and I hate the situation. And even <coughs> Harry's friends, they don't really seem to agree with how he did it. He doesn't seem to have done it quite right. And so it's painful, like a scrape on the concrete. It scrapes against my nerves and my feelings. But I, I do potentially not see it as problematic if it is the case that Remus was trying to join them in order to escape a real responsibility and that that's been a pattern in his life. Um, even though I do find it, I still find it sort of a problem that they wouldn't have let him into their confidence. But what do you think, Sarah? I like the idea that, um, that, that West positive that, that you uh, affirmed here. I, I think there's also something to be said about the fact that, he well so Harry says you know if Dumbledore didn't tell you what we're up to then I don't think I can um right. I mean Lupin is older than they are um and uh there's definitely um I, I think there's like a generational piece to this as well that um and we'll see this again as as the book unfolds and we start to learn more about what Dumbledore was like when he was a kid um, when he was a teenager, especially becomes important, um, that the next generation does it better than the current generation, almost invariably. Um, you know, my students are way more accepting of people who are different, um, than I ever was and any of my classmates ever were, um, you know, like I, I, you go back and you watch like John Hughes movies about like with high school and like the jocks and the geeks and the skater kids and all these like cliques maybe that exists in some places in high school but I've worked in a lot of high schools and I don't see it anymore like kids today are gonna save the world um um I listen to them talk about climate change and they I, I've watched them write initiatives for a civics unit and they're coming up with ideas that are brilliant um, and that's because they're the ones who are going to live with the problems that the older people have created. Um, and I think in some ways there's like a comment here that, that Lupin isn't in their generation. Um, and he can't use his outsiderness in his own generation to make himself more fit with, um, with this group of, of teens. Like I actually find what Lupin offers I find it creepy um there's no situation in which a 35 or 40 year old man should be hanging out with 17 year olds none 
Um, just none. Uh, and like society frowns on that. I frown on that. I think they're developmentally in different places and set aside the fact that he's married and his wife is expecting a child. Um, and for Harry, that hits home. I think in a very believable way for me that like, you're, you're, you're going to be a parent. You're going to abandon your kid like that. What the fuck? Like, um, you know, I, I, I believe that hundred percent. Um, but I think it has to do part of it that it makes it believable to me, at least from that, the, the writer's perspective is that they're make, like, I think she's making a comment about age um, and like where, where solutions are found to, to crises. Um, it's not in adults. Unfortunately, adults cannot be taught new tricks. Um, kids can be taught new tricks. Right. Um, I, I think, and that's something that I, I come away from reading the series as a whole with the sense that adults are, are a problem and children are the solution. Um, and not only that, but an, an adult, cynical, realistic, purely pragmatic worldview on our world's problems, that is the problem. And that it's fairy stories that inspire a kind of childlike wonder at the world or a willing to, willingness to reorient oneself, to question what you think you know, to imagine you know, a green sky and a blue horse. Um, like that is what allows people to solve shit like climate change is creativity that most kids have and adults learn to do without, unfortunately. Um, but besides that, I know that that's right. Get off my soapbox. But besides that, the other thing that I think about, um, that is related to this, that, that I think is important for them not accepting Lupin's help related to the fact that he's an adult is the fact that he was their teacher. And I think that if they had accepted his help and, you know, three becomes four, um, uh, you know, three kids and one adult, I think they would have just deferred to him in every decision that they had to make. And he would consistently rely upon, well, I know better because I'm older or believe me, I have more experience or that'll never work you know, that idea is crazy. I know what I'm talking about. And I just think that they would be less bold um, in their decisions. I think there's something to be said about wandering around without a guide. Um, I think about these, uh, those things that they got from Dumbledore. Um, and, and the, 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 the way they figured, the way that Harry figured out that the snitch has a flesh memory. They don't need an adult with them to help them with anything, but if they did, past a certain point, it, it would stunt their, their creativity. Um, I, think it would, I, think, I think they would be way more deferential to having him around. Um, and I, I think there's something really virtuous or virtue-making in having to figure shit out for yourself. Um, and not having somebody tell you what to do or how to see something. Um, and I think they would have just been overly deferential to this adult in the room, um, which would keep them from becoming adults themselves. That's my opinion. Especially agreeing with your second point, which suggests to me a slightly different reading from your first point, which is just that 
if Lupin were there, that would be another figure of the father or of the, the already adult, the already proven figure who could, again, lay things out from his own experience for them rather than allowing them to figure out their own solutions. I agree with that. And I see that as the essence of what this text is about, about the process by which one becomes a moral and effective adult. It's as if one's uh, life at Hogwarts is preparation for having the skills necessary to fight the big battles as an adult. And because I just, the one, the one problem I just see with, with your first reading and you know, it's just a small one is this, is that how could this also be a book about becoming an adult? If to become an adult would be to become part of the problem. I, I see that as sort I, of the P, Peter Pan story. Um, right. But I just, but I, I just, don't think, I don't yeah. think it's, I don't, I don't think it's not about, I, I do think the book is definitely okay. about maturation and, and becoming sure. an adult, but I, th I think it's about becoming a kind of, adu of an adult that right. isn't sucked, sucked into the ministry nonsense, right? Gotcha. Like the, sure. right. Do you know what I mean? That like, uh, and, I and that I do, I time do. period so of like, sorry, I, I didn't mean the, I, I, I don't, that's not a fully formed idea for sure, but um, like that 17, 18, 19 year old, 20 year old, even that time frame, I would say that that even extends well into your 20s. And yes. like, I think neuroscience would back me up on that one. That um, like, that's a time period in which um, I think the, ten the temptation is to lose wonder, to become practical to lose the things that like actually make them successful in the ministry, right? Like, um, uh, uh, you know, the willingness to, to protect other people, the way that Hermione is so compassionate about creature, the way that Ron is compassionate about this woman who he doesn't even know, but is like, Oh yeah, my wife, right? <laughs> like he's, he's so embodying this character that he, he kind of forgets, who each, who, you know, what he's there for. Um, the things that make them successful are also the things that the adults in these books seem to forget. Um, and I think, I think there's, there's something about maturation that's important. That's definitely, a, obviously I'd like zoom out that Epic is about, but I also think there's something about like part of growing up well means not disdaining the things that that kids know that adults forget right and i i mean i i'll stand by my my belief and claim that kids will are will be better adults or better at solving or are better at solving problems i mean look at the civil rights movement that was largely children i mean not children children but like 20 year old people um taking on 65 year old who are who were who were racist and preferred things the way they were right like i think great movements are born of of like creativity and imagination that are that that like the adult world stamps out um and, and but but not in the sense that like i don't mean i i, I want to distinguish between like growing up and being an adult i guess sure more like more like in um the polar express not losing the ability to hear the bells or, or like in the Pauline right. New Testament, becoming childlike or, you know, con keeping the virtues of childhood, the so-called, you know, the compassion, you know, and the ability to see the downtrodden for people and not just 
for like the, you know, their, their, their utility or their social rank or something like that. Right. I, yeah, I you don't, that. you don't, you don't stay a kid. You just become a better version of an adult. Right. You're like an extremely effective kid in that you have the values of a child, but the skills of an adult. I, I take your meaning. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. It's not fully developed, but yeah. Well, speaking of not fully developed, that's, uh, that's this book right now. And so our, our ideas on this book can't be fully developed, nor this series until we, you know, we intrepidly move forward. And so we've got a lot of book to cover here. And um, we, you know, we've got a lot of projects going on. It's the summer, we're all traveling and we're doing this other British literature, this uh, other small British author, Shakespeare, in the next few days. So uh, how much would y'all like to read? I, I can see good arguments for ending at 18, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, but also 19, The Silver Doe. Uh, yeah, I haven't looked that far ahead, so either one's fine by me, um, but it's up to you guys. I, I think if we, if you can, if you want to like kind of keep the, the, like the cinematic scope, I would go through 19. Um, All right. Yeah. I'm down. It it starts, it, it's the, it's like the beginning, middle and end of a particular plot arc. If there's anything I love, it's scope and magnitude and definitely, um, our scope has continued to increase and I really love this project and the perspectives we're bringing forth. And, um, you know, I, I've really loved having the chance to do this with you all for a year and it's been, you know, it's been wonderful professionally and just literarily, and it's just been a real pleasure and honor as well. And it's, I feel like I can even, I'm even a more defined and better defined person and thinker because of doing this with you all. And I understand myself better. And I think I understand human, human nature better because of it, and I'm better at saying uh, interesting, true things than I was even a year ago. And I think even my attitude's better, so thank you, you two. A plus, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I, I've, I've really enjoyed doing this. Um, so we've also got to start tackling Shakespeare, right? Uh, Friday, Comedy of Errors. So that, that will just continue to broaden and deepen our, uh, our project here, I hope. And hope, yeah, hopefully the title of our first Shakespeare will not be uh, a piece of dramatic irony at our expense, though surely it will be. And <laughs> well, well, you all, happy summer. Welcome back to Shakespeare in the summer. And uh, also, you know, Harry Potter, I guess, you know, what, the, the Isles in the summer, something like that, some sort of bit of, bit of alliteration. I would say Slytherin, but no, we're not fans of that. Uh, per se. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Everyone, everyone has something to bring to the table. Everyone <laughs> has bring something. That's right. That's right. And what a table it has been. What a feast. Uh, what a feast for the mind, indeed. And so, well, let's have a wonderful summer. And I'm looking forward to sharing more wonderful worlds with both of you. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Cheers, y'all. Take Cheers. It easy.